It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster, that lucky guy, is covering the World Series. So that leaves just uh, myself, Jonathan Mayo, and of course Jim Callis uh, to talk about the World Series and uh, and some other things in, in this year's edition. Uh, Jim, I know you're back from uh, the fall. I hope your travels went okay. Yeah, everything went good. It was fairly smooth. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're gonna we're gonna we will touch on the fall league at the end a little bit, but obviously everyone's paying attention to the the World Series as we record this. Uh, it, we are sort of waiting for Game Two uh, after the Red Sox won Game One, eight to four. Uh, so we're gonna kind of unpack the World Series from a prospect standpoint, uh, looking at it from a couple different angles. Uh, both Jim and I have. Uh, stories that do this in, in a couple of different ways. And we're going to start out just by looking at uh, the top former prospects who are in the World Series. And, Jim, this has kind of become a, an annual uh, story, which uh, I love to read that you do, in, in terms of ranking uh, guys as prospects who are now uh, playing, uh, playing in, in the World Series. Uh, some of the obvious names uh, are on there. Uh, the top of the list. I know that you struggled a little bit trying to figure out who to put where at the at the very top of this list. Yeah, because you know, again, we're doing this. It's not where you were drafted. It's you know, we try to gauge when we're ranking these guys. You know, what your prospect status was when you first made your big league debut, and even that's tricky because, I mean, as you know, Jonathan, when we talk about top 100 lists, and you can go back and look at those. But those are really a snapshot of a specific moment in time. So if you do a preseason list and the guy gets called up in August, uh, a lot can change by then. I mean, case in point, he was, he was well down the list because this is a pretty loaded series where I think there were 21 guys who are on MLB.com top 100 prospect list one time or another. But Yasiel Puig was not ranked especially high in the preseason top 100, but went out and tore it up in the minors. And, and his, if you had done a list, you know, right when he did his debut, he would have ranked higher. But it was interesting. I mean, the number one spot I thought was fairly easy. It was David Price. I mean, he was the number one overall pick in the 2007 draft. He was up at the end of 2008. I think the only guy you could really challenge him as being baseball's top prospect at that point might have been Matt Wieters. But I think you ranked David Price number one when you were at MLB.com then, Jonathan. I was at Baseball America, of course. Um, I also thought David Price was the best prospect. So he was easy. After that, you could kind of argue the guys in different orders. Manny Machado, uh, first high school player from the 2010 draft, number three pick overall. Uh, first, first player in that high school player from that draft to make it to the big leagues. He got there right after he turned 20, learned third base on the fly, and was very impressive. He was in the running for best prospect in baseball when he got called up. Um, I, I guess I will correct myself. We, we had Andrew Benatendi as our number one prospect. Well, I, 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 let me rephrase that. When Andrew Benatendi made his big league debut, he was not our number one prospect, but he was still rookie eligible, and he ranked as our number one prospect the following year. And then there was Xander Bogart, who I think we had at number two, 
two uh, on our prospect list. Um, and his story was very similar to Manny Machado's. Got to the big leagues at age 20, like the Orioles did. The Red Sox asked Xander Bogart, hey, we need you to learn third base at the big league level. And, oh, by the way, help us win a World Series, which he did. So it was kind of interesting. And, and I won't go through the whole list. We'll make people read the story. But then we had two more pitchers, Clayton Kershaw and Julio Urias, right behind those four. And they were probably in the running, not necessarily for the best prospect in baseball, but for the best pitching prospect in baseball when they made their debuts. And, and I, I just enjoy looking back at this stuff. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, guys, people, you know, forget about the, the kind of the prospect origins of these guys. So I, I ranked all 21 top 100 guys and tried to tell you a little bit about what they were when they were drafted and what they were when they got to the big leagues. Yeah, I love some of the background stuff they have. You, know, you, you mentioned Kershaw. I mean, I love, and, and you know, uh, anytime you sort of look back at drafts, it's always fun to uh, kind of look at the sometimes it's better to be lucky than good just in terms of a guy being there for you. And you, you, you quickly told the, the story of, uh, of Clayton Kershaw, you know, that, uh, you know, things could have gone very, very differently. Uh, Hochaver went number one, 20. In the 06 draft, that meant Andrew Miller ended up six to the Tigers, and the Tigers were going to take Kershaw. So things could have been a whole lot different if things had, had unfolded differently. Um, the one, I, and I know you, you and I talked about this a little bit, was the Benintendi versus the Bogarts. And listen, it's splitting hairs who's three and who's four, um, you know, both with, both with the Red Sox. But, uh, you know, it's always fun to sort of make arguments. And I know that you, uh, you enjoy splitting hairs with the best of them. So I'm sure uh, it was a fun exercise to figure out who, you know, who to put where. Yeah, no, I actually texted, I think, you and a couple uh, a couple scouts to <laughs> to get their opinion because, uh, you know me, I'm obsessive about my list, and even though, I mean, this is subjective, uh, I still wanted to make sure I had the right guy at three and the right guy at four, and if I rewrote this tomorrow, I, I might flip them. But, uh, right, but yeah, right. it's, it's always kind of fun to look at that stuff. Yeah, and, I, and I, you know, like Julio Arias, you put right behind Kershaw, and uh, it's easy to forget that he's still only 22, um, just because of the, the, how quickly he got to the big leagues, and then uh, then the injury problems that the, you know that kept him off the the field for so long, uh, I think people are getting a look at what he's capable of right now in these shorter stints. Uh, but he has a really high ceiling. If you were to do a list like this five years from now, in terms of who ended up being the best players, it, he may have to jump up just because we, you know we've yet to see what he might end up becoming when all said and done. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, it's interesting too looking at guys like a like like a Cody Bellinger who was only a fourth round pick, and you know, people you know probably don't remember because he wasn't a big name at the time. But he was a fourth round pick. He he did get an overslot bonus at the time, not huge money, seven hundred thousand dollars. But the question on Cody Bellinger, oddly enough, was power. I mean, he was a really lanky high school kid who had kind of a, a, a relatively flat swing, and people weren't sure how strong he was going to get and how much power he would have. Right. And he really didn't hit for much power his first two years in pro ball. His pro debut was a struggle. He was really good, but it was more average in power in a short season league his second year. And then he made adjustments, and he, he's the Cody Bellinger we see today. But it, it's just, you know, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting looking back at these things, too, is to remember that, you know, development's not linear. You know, not, not all guys just, you know, make gradual improvements. Some guys, you know, struggle for a little bit and, and then take off. Um, you know, it's also interesting looking at, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know, some of these guys were huge prospects back then and are more bit players now. I mean, Drew Pomerantz was the number five overall pick in the draft. 
Um, and you know, and now he was the last man in it to the World Series roster for the Red Sox. So I, right. I, I could write those stories all day. I, I really enjoy taking a look back. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll get to a, a couple more look back uh, stories that we're we're both working on uh, as we proceed here. But uh, you know, we always like to look at not only the the top prospects, uh, the guys that we had ranked highly and things like that, but the guys that you know not just we missed on or, you know, prospect rankers missed on, but a lot, you know, the scouting industry missed on and uh, the, the sort of uh, humble beginnings guys, we'll use the, the phrase that you, you threw out there when we were discussing this. And, um, but, you know, there, there are some good names, you know, some have turned into superstars and some, you know, are, are uh, complimentary parts, at least of the world series uh, start points up, but, um, you know, the, the first guy that obviously comes to mind has to be J.D. Martinez, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, J.D. Martinez was a 20th rounder out of Nova Southeastern in 2009. And I want to say, I think there were three or four big leaguers on that team. I know Mike Fires was on that team, too. He, he signed for $30,000. Um, you know, it had a great year at Nova Southeastern. Not that college stats mean a ton, but he hit 428 as a junior. He came out, you know, and, and it's interesting. You know, I went back and looked. He had success right away. He he won the New York Penn Batting League, uh, New York Penn League batting title in his debut. He was a South Atlantic League MVP in his first full season, but he was more of a guy who hit for average with decent power. Um, you know the, the power that we see now. You know we all know the story about how he remade his swing after the Astros released him. Um, but you know that that wasn't apparent at the time. You know it was an all bat guy. Um, he was kind of seen as, as really a second division regular, not a guy who <laughs> who was doing what he's doing now, which is batting in the heart of the order for a World Series uh, caliber club. I, I I will say, Jonathan, I, I went back and looked. You know I, I was back then. I was a Baseball America doing draft report cards every year, and I did mention him in our Astros uh, draft report card. Both, you know, he had the debut, is obvious, and for best late-round pick, I wrote, he's a decent athlete who consistently puts the barrel on the ball. So that was my uh, initial take. And, and then Dodgers, you know, have a story that's, that's kind of similar. Uh, Justin Turner, now he played at a high-profile program. He was at Cal State Fullerton, right. but he was a senior signed, you know, $50,000 as a seventh-rounder. Um, you know, and he was kind of seen as a Utility guy, you know, he, he Reds took him. Uh, he hit for average in the minors, but never really showed much power. Guys didn't really see him as a shortstop, and he bounced from the the Reds to the Orioles to the Mets and to the Dodgers. And and, and he was another guy who remade his swing and and really took off. And I, I think we both did the A system, Jonathan, didn't we? When Max Muncy was coming up, uh, you know, what was your take on him? You know, coming up through the minors. Do you remember much about him? No, which says plenty. I mean, I do remember him. Um, you know, as a guy who, uh, you know, kind of typical A's hitter with a good approach, um, kind of limited defensively, uh, wasn't going to catch in all likelihood, or if he was, it was going to be really offensive-minded, and, you know, put up some good numbers early, kind of plateaued a little bit, and he got released. I mean, that's uh, it's not often you see a guy get released and then, you know, a year later turn into uh, uh, an integral part of a championship team. And uh, I think they were making a point on the broadcast in game one, uh, talking about what Muncie did in the first half and what Matt Kemp did uh, in the first half. The Dodgers wouldn't be where they were if it hadn't been for that because the rest of the team was struggling. And these two guys that, you know, were 
barely holding on to, to professional careers, it seemed, stepped up and became, you know, not just contributors, but, you know, major, major players. And, uh, you know, to have a guy like Muncie come off the bench in game one because David Freeze got the start at first, I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing to have that kind of power left-handed bat. Um, you know, you know, but the, another example of a guy completely reborn uh, and who looked like he was going to be, you know, maybe a career minor leaguer. And, you know, at least with Justin Turner, you know, when the Dodgers got him, you thought, all right, well, maybe he'll just continue to be nothing spectacular, but he had value as a utility guy. He could move around a little bit. Uh, you know, was a heady player. Uh, as guys from Fulton often are, uh, and and so you at least you'd have that. You know, you'd have that role player bench guy. Uh, no one foresaw he was going to do this. Max Muncy was a guy who was kind of like a bad only first base type in the nat. You know, now with the National League, so he couldn't even DH. Um, he has completely gone way past I think what anybody thought he he was going to do. Uh, so yeah, a, a real interesting find for for the Dodgers as a you know as a minor league free agent uh, actually both he and Turner were both minor league free agent signings so uh, kudos to them to giving them the space um, you know to you know to to get there yeah I mean Matt Max Muncy a guy whose bat was gonna have to carry him you know play, got 245 plate appearance of Oakland over two years hit 195 with a 321 slugging percentage, and then this year he hits 35 homers in 395 at-bats with the right. Dodgers. So, uh, you know, indeed, kudos to them for, for seeing something there. And, and, Jonathan, you did a story, uh, you know, our, our annual How They Were Built series, and, and, you know, from looking at it, both the Red Sox and the Dodgers kind of were constructed in similar fashions, weren't they? Yeah, they, they were in a lot of ways. It's funny because uh, – one thing that stood up about the Dodgers, uh, and then we, we do these how they were built starting from the postseason and then sort of uh, updated them uh, with the World Series rosters and, and things of that nature, is you know, they have more homegrown talent than people think uh, you know, that they're given credit for. But uh, both teams really were heavy on the trades. Uh, each team, 13 of the 25 on the World Series roster, uh, were acquired via trades, and what's always interesting to me is yes, everyone knows about the the blockbusters, and the Dodgers have done that like the last two years. You know, last year they traded for Hugh Darvish to bolster their rotation to help them get to the to to the World Series. This year, obviously, Manny Machado, the huge a- acquisition. But sometimes it's the it's the smaller deals uh, that make a, a huge difference. Uh, you know, the ones that sort of stood out to me for the Red Sox, um, Steve Pierce, uh, you know, that the, they got him in June and he ended up kind of becoming the regular first baseman for, for Boston. And that guy seems to have, you know, at least nine lives as a, as a big leaguer. I remember when he was here in Pittsburgh and seemed like a, a fringy player, uh, at best. And, you know, he, he played a pivotal role and you know, they went out and got Ian Kinsler and uh, he's helped, uh, sort of. Uh, solidify second base with Dustin Pedroia hurt. Um, the one that really kind of has been amazing to me is Nathan Eovaldi, who they got from the Rays. And uh, talk about a guy who's sort of resurrecting his career after injuries. Uh, and he has been 
Uh, he was so consistent in the rotation down the stretch. He has been pivotal in what Alex Cora has done in terms of dropping starting pitchers into into their bullpen when needed, uh, pitching multiple innings. The stuff plays up in those in, the, in those roles also. So, it, you know that those kind of deals on the Dodgers side. Uh, you know there are the, those those big trades, but they also went out and you know got uh, Chris Taylor in, in a trade. They got. Um, you know, Alex Wood, you know, guy in Kike Hernandez, all these guys were guys that got trade. Matt Kemp, who I mentioned earlier, who, you know, was, was a trade. It was almost like a salary dump kind of thing. And he sort of fought his way onto the big league roster and then onto, you know, uh, being an all-star in the first half. You know, his first half, again, as I said, without that first half, who knows where the Dodgers would be because they were, they were floundering as it was, and with, with without those, and, and then they went out, you know, getting a David Freeze, who has come up with some big hits and obviously has a long postseason resume. I think that they found a, a way to, uh, you know, use the, the blockbuster, but also those smaller trades. I think have been pivotal for for both teams to to get to where they are right now. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, these are two teams with with, with huge payrolls. I want to say the Dodgers. They dialed it back this year to try to get you know reset their luxury tax penalty. But the Dodgers, I think, had the highest payroll and maybe set records uh, for highest payroll you know the previous four years. But at the same time, both teams have done very good work, you know, developing their own talent. You know, these are teams. You know, the Red Sox were our number one farm system in mid 2015. The Dodgers were number one in the spring of 2016. And one of the things when we're doing something like this, it doesn't always show up. But you know, it's not just the guys. That you produce, you know, and the Red Sox had Ben Intendi and Devers, and the Dodgers, you know, Bellinger and Walker Buehler and, and Julio Urias are probably their biggest homegrown guys. Uh, you know, Clayton Kershaw, you know, going back further, you know, Xander Bogarts, Mookie Betts were, were guys who were Red Sox from from before we had them ranked number one. But also just providing the ammunition to make trades. You know, yes, having yeah. you know financial resources. You know, it's nice that you can afford to trade for Manny Machado, but you have to have the ammunition to go get him. You know, same thing for, for trading for Chris Sale. You know, Rick Hahn wasn't going to trade Chris Sale unless he got a ton of high-ranked prospects. And you could argue at the time that Yohan Mankata might have been the best position prospect and, and Michael Kopech was on his way to being the best pitching prospect. And the Red Sox gave both those guys up and a third futures gamer and Luis Alexander Basabi. And they gave up a ton to get Kimbrell, too. So it's, you know, it, it's not just... You know, it's not just financial wherewithal with these teams. I think you have to give both front offices a ton of credit just for, you know, from building within. You know, as you know, Jonathan, you talk to people about, you know, farm system. The farm system's job is to help the big league club. Sometimes that's by putting the players straight in the big leagues. A lot of times it's by providing that ammunition so you can go out and make a big ticket acquisition. And the Dodgers also deserve a tip of the cap. I want to say they probably had the biggest international presence, didn't they, of, of any of the teams in the postseason, I think, not, not just the World Series. Yeah, and that's, and that's nothing new. I mean, I think the, that, that has been the case uh, for a while. They have six players um, internationally now. Some of that is you know, the, the, the big-ticket Yasiel Puig-type uh, uh, type acquisitions. Uh, you know, uh, but they all, you know, and Kenta Maeda and Hyung Jin Ryu, they, they've been active, uh, in the Asian market as well. Uh, 
but uh, then it also includes Pedro Baez and Julio Urias, you mentioned, uh, we've talked about as you know, one of the better prospects that they've had really coming through. So they, they've done a, a very nice job uh, in terms of that and had a, a larger international presence uh, than, than anyone else. And it's interesting, you know, just to get back for a second on, you talk about needing homegrown players to either feed the big league roster or to use as trades, um, you know, and there's always that sort of there's more than one way to, to build a winner. Um, and sometimes it's not the same front office, right? So you know, the Red Sox uh, built up their farm system previously, and then Dave Dombrowski, who does have a reputation for using the farm system to make trades for, for the big league team to bring in big leaguers, um, uh, he used a lot of that ammunition, but it's hard to fault him when the team wins 108 games and, and it's a game up now on and, and World Series and it's, I think, from, to, for most people, the, the favorite to, to win this year and, and perhaps built to, to be successful for the next couple. Well, you know, the interesting you know, thing, you know, we, we talk about building from within and building through the draft. The, 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 a lot of big names from the 2010 draft are in this World Series. You know, we touched on a couple of them. We are talking about ranking these guys as prospects. But I know, Jonathan, you've been kind of digging into that a little bit. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about uh, what, what you found when going back and looking at that 2010 draft impact. Oh, man, it's been so much fun. I mean, I know you love doing these kind of retrospective things also. And hindsight in the scouting world is, uh, you know, unfair. Uh, and it's something that, you know, if you're a scouting director, you, you can't play in that exercise too much. Um, you know, as uh, Chris Buckley, the the red scouting director, uh, I know, I guess now he's got a fancier title uh, that he's been bumped bumped up a bit. But the scouting director for years for the Reds, he's like, you look back and there are always do overs you know, that you're you're going to want. You know, uh, you know, Mike Trout went whatever 25th in his draft year, but 2010 was really interesting, and there are now four guys from that first round, actually from the first 13 picks, who are, uh, who are in the World Series with the addition of Drew Pomerantz, uh, you mentioned went number five overall. Uh, Manny Machado was the number three pick that year. Uh, and had th- you know, that year uh, was one of those years where a few guys separated themselves. Uh, it became pretty clear that this was the Bryce Harper year, for, for people who don't remember, uh, it was pretty obvious pretty soon that he was going to be the number one guy, unless there was some financial reason that it wasn't going to happen. Um, and then after that, uh, it was really Jamison Tyon, who's a high schooler out of uh, right-hander out of Texas, uh, out of the Texas high school ranks, and Manny Machado, who's in, in Miami, high school player. And depending on who you talk to, both with the, the Pirates who picked two and the Orioles who picked three, but even on down, uh, you probably could have gotten, men, you know, thirty different opinions uh, on who should have, uh, h- how they would have toggled that one back and forth, and you could make a, an argument for either. Uh, and in the end, uh, the Orioles were kind of in a, an an enviable position because they could just wait to see what the Pirates were going to do, and likely take who, you know, who was left. And that's exactly what, uh, what happened. Uh, the, the Pirates took Tyon and, and the Orioles took Machado. And, you know, at, at least as of right now, Machado has had the better big league career because of Tyon's injuries. I think there's still a lot of baseball left to be played for, for all these players. I think what makes this draft interesting is that the player of all these who's had the highest war has been Chris Sale. And Jim, you remember the, all the issues with uh, with sale, um, 
you know, arm action delivery. Is he a starter versus a reliever? And that's why he ended up going 13th um, to the White Sox. The Reds had Grandal, Osmani Grandal, uh, who was a, you know, switching catcher out of the University of Miami, uh, and Sale atop their board. They went with Grandal. The White Sox went with Sale. You know, the rest, at least as of right now, they, as they say, is, has been history. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because, as you mentioned, there was a clear top three. And I do remember one of the interesting things in retrospect was talking to the Pirates. They would have taken Jameson Tyone number one. I, I don't know if they were turned off by, by the makeup questions about Harper, but I do remember them specifically telling me that. And there was no clear-cut number four guy. Um, and, and I just think too many teams talked themselves out of sale because he was super skinny. He had the low mm-hmm. arm angle. Now, he'd had a lot of success. He was the best pitcher in the Cape Cod League against the best competition in the country. Um, and, and he had held up all spring at, at, uh, at, Gold, at Florida Gulf Coast. But teams outsmarted themselves. I mean, what's interesting is the number four pick wound up being Christian Colon, who didn't have much of a big league career, but did get the game-winning hit in the game that gave the Kansas City Royals their, their World Series championship. And you had one team after another kind of talk themselves out of sale. But back then, the top college pitchers, usually the top two or three college pitchers in every draft, would get a, like a four or five big league, four or five-year big league contract worth about $5 million. And so you, you threw that on top of the concerns about the arm angle and, and, and the frame, and people passed on him. And one of the great things, it was pretty interesting, the team that took him it was probably the, the team that spent less on the draft than anybody, the White Sox, and they were notorious. Jerry Reinsdorf hated the draft. He hated spending money, and they, you know, they basically adhered to the commissioner's office guidelines for what you should spend on picks, which was usually well below market value. And it was an interesting situation because they told Sale, we're not going to give you a big league contract. We're only going to give you the slot bonus, uh, which, you know, back then guys were signing for well above slot because the slots were unilaterally determined by MLB and were so low. But if you sign and you sign quickly, we'll give you every chance to make the big leagues this year because the White Sox were kind of on the fringes of a wild card race. And he did, and he went on from there. So it was real interesting uh, to see, you know, to see that unfold. But, uh, it, you know, and it's interesting, too, that the Drew Pomerantz, you know, went ahead of three of those, or two of those guys ahead of both Grandall and Sale. Um, you know, and again, I mean, he kind of fit the more traditional look of what you wanted a starting pitcher to be. And his thing was interesting too, John, because he got traded almost immediately by the Indians. I, I had not remembered this until I was writing my story, but but you know, you can't get traded until a year after you sign a contract. And he actually got traded and was in limbo because he couldn't change organizations right. officially as the player to be named in the Baldo Jimenez trade, and he was up you know, very quickly the next year, too. So it's just interesting to see, you know, how all this stuff kind of kind of circles back. And here we are, you know, what is it, eight years later, eight years, four yeah. of the top 13 picks are in the draft, are in the World Series. None of them were the teams that picked them. Yeah, no, that's true. They've, they've all been moved. I mean, Pomerantz is a guy who, you know, kind of, it looked like he was on the cusp of, uh, I don't want to say being a bust, but not being quite what you would want from that college lefty to take number five overall. And yes, he's not the guy that you thought he'd be. Certainly not in in Chris Sale territory. Uh, but he's carved out a, a big league career and is you know and has had some success. One last Chris Sale story, uh, and then we'll, we'll move on a, a little bit. Um, you know, and and uh, it was interesting because. Uh, Chris Buckley, the Reds uh, scouting director, you and I have talked to a lot, was saying that, uh, you know, sure, he would 
you know, in retrospect, he would have taken sale. But this isn't one of those ones where he would want a, a do-over, just because Yasmani you know, is a he's a pretty solid player. So you wouldn't necessarily there are ones you'd say. Uh, I, you know, I, I would totally do over, and there were countless teams. I mean, the Diamondbacks took Barrett Laux, um, who never, you know, pitched a day in the big leagues. Uh, the Padres took uh, Karsten Whitson um, out of high school. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Matt Harvey and Delano Shields went seven and eight, and they, they've obviously been big leaguers. Michael Choice, Deck McGuire. I mean, uh, so those might be teams that would be like, boy, I wish we we had that to do over. Uh, Chris Buckley would not have done it over, and uh, but would have taken sale. And then you know, you you mentioned the fact that a lot of people probably overanalyze, and that happens sometimes with a guy with you know the arm action that Chris Sale is. One of the things that I think that benefited the White Sox is that they didn't really have the time to overanalyze because they didn't think there was any chance they were going to get him. Um, and in fact, Kenny Williams. Uh, was the general manager uh, who typically likes to go out and see guys that they're going to take in the first round hadn't seen him, so they 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 kind of had to do it not quickly because they got they started to get an idea, but more quickly than than you would have normally. And, and Doug Lauman told me, um, and and this will probably show up somewhere in the story that you know who knows if they had had the time to really break it down and look at the video frame by frame. Maybe he would have swayed to go, been swayed to go in a different direction, but because they had to kind of make more of an adjustment on the fly than they would have, they ended up taking him, and, and obviously it worked out. That's um, a great point. I was just say, Jonathan, because if yeah. you go look back when Kenny Williams was in charge there, they liked to draft physical specimens, and Chris Sale was not a physical specimen. So I, right. I had not thought about that, but, but you're exactly right. Had, had they had better idea that he was going to get there, and Kenny Williams went out and saw him, Kenny Williams might have might have been concerned about the physique too, and they might have passed also. It, it, like you said earlier in the podcast, sometimes it, it, it helps to be lucky. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and it also helped that uh, when uh, when Doug Lauman saw him, he remembered the exact date. By the way, it was a game against Belmont. He threw a one hit shutout. He threw 132 pitches, and uh, the first three innings he was 93 to 94. He was 94 to 96 in the middle three. It was a zero zero game. His team scored a one run in the seventh, and then he was 97 to 98 in the eighth and ninth innings on pitches 130 to 132. So he kind of threw all those questions out the window by seeing them. And as, as he and, and uh, Chris Buckley, because they, they've picked side-by-side side a lot, uh, said it's like the difference often is, you know, how you see them when you see them. You know, you can have all the data in the world, and if you don't see them that great, you're not likely to pound the table for them. And since uh, Doug had seen them so, so good, it was easy for him to say, this is the guy we need to take. But more on that when people you know, see the story. Uh, I know you're also working on a story, uh, sort of a retrospective on the 2011 draft and the Red Sox, because that ended up being, uh, you know, quite the the collection of players that have really impacted this World Series team. Yeah, and again, you want to talk about good fortune. I I still need to dig in this a little bit more, so I haven't gotten the, the, the definitive answer to this question. But I'll start by talking about the player they got away. The Red Sox really, really, really loved their eighth rounder, Senquez Golson, is the super athletic outfielder from Mississippi. They they made a seven figure offer to him, and he turned them down. 
Uh, he wound up going to Ole Miss to play football. He's uh, he got drafted second round pick of the Steelers, which is I think both my team, favorite team and your favorite team. And was hurt. Never really. I don't know if he's ever played an NFL game, but he, he was a very good NFL prospect at one point as well. But I'm not sure if they signed St. Clair Golson if they have the money to go get Mookie Betts right. in the fifth round and sign him. And it, it was interesting because the the scouting reports on, on Mookie at the time. You know, there, there was a reason he went in the fifth round. Part of it was a little bit of signability because he, he did sign for 750, which was over slot. But if you looked at the scouting reports at the time, it was kind of like, you know what? He, he's a good athlete. He's got you know solid tools, but no real plus tool. If you're grading him out, nobody was projecting he was going to be. You know, it looks like the MVP this year in the American League. Um, and even his pro career didn't start that way. He was just kind of an athletic guy, you know, middle infielder at the time, you know, good basketball player. I think he was the Tennessee boys high school bowler of the year as well. Um, and they really did a good job with that. But, but beyond that, I mean, you have Jackie Bradley Jr., who was actually only their fourth pick in the draft. Um, you know, he, and he would have got, been a guy who should not have been there. But he had a rough year. He had a wrist injury. And that was the year the NCAA really toned down their bats. Um, and Jackie, by contrast, was kind of the scouting reports were pretty accurate. He was, you know, tremendous defensive center fielder, and you know, inconsistent with the bat, but he had some power and he drew some walks, and that's the kind of player he's become. But he was only the fourth player. The first three picks they had were Matt Barnes, who's now a key reliever for them. But at the time, they looked at maybe be a number three starter. Um, Blake Swihart, who was a guy who fell because of signability to late in the first round. And as you know, Jonathan, I, I had a love affair with, with, with Blake Swihart as a prospect. I, I thought he had the tools of a young Buster Posey. And just because injury is an opportunity, that hasn't quite worked out. But he's on the World Series roster. And then the, their, their third pick ahead of Jackie Bradley Jr. was Henry Owens, who at one point was, was one of the highest-ranked lefties in the minors and never really kind of broke through. Um, they got a couple other fringe big leaguers. And then in the ninth round, they, they took Kent State third baseman Travis Shaw, who is also rapidly, or, or not rapidly, but, but well exceeded expectations, although they traded him for the, in the Tyler Thornburg trade a couple years ago and, and really haven't gotten much out of Thornburg. But, uh, you know, that is one of your early favorites for, for being one of the best drafts of the decade. And, you know, four players on this World Series roster and had the Brewers won game seven, would have delivered five players in this World Series. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really an unbelievable haul from 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 one draft and uh poor henry owens that's all i have to say i kept wanting henry owens he, he was the guy that i thought was you know of this group was kind of the, the exciting uh you know coming out of the draft just a you know projectable lefty but anyway i'm looking at their their 2011 draft hall uh and uh he did make it to the big league so at least you can say that and I mean, if you if you want to give them credit, we're talking about pro- providing ammunition. You know, their, their second round pick. You know, they drafted Williams Perez, who was a an outfielder, high school outfielder mm-hmm. from New York, and he didn't really hit. And they wound up converting him to the mound. And he was they traded him along with Ty Buttry this year and got Ian Kinsler. So I mean, you know, even for a guy who hasn't done much at the big league level yet, you know, he's contributed too. So I mean, twenty, you know, that, that's what twenty five percent of the World Series roster was either drafted in 2011 or came from trades out of it. So pretty impressive. Very good stuff. All right, before we, before we wrap things up, uh, you, know, you did just get back from the Arizona Fall League, so you got a chance to uh, see all the talent. But uh, I, I'm curious to, you know, if you have a, a sort of final thoughts uh, 
any uh, any talent or anybody that stood out, anybody that surprised you in terms of what you saw in your week in Arizona? Yeah, I'll throw out a general thought. I, I had a, a I, I got two extra in games. So I got to see my favorite uh, rule with the runner on second base. But I, I can't tell you how many games I was covering that were zero zero one one after eight innings. Both teams four or five hits. I, the, the offense, for whatever reason, seems to be down at least to the games I was at. I mean, there've been a couple of explosions, and steals are way up compared to the past. And so I don't I don't know what that means, but that. Kind of that was a general thought I had after being out there for, for for a little bit more than a week. I mean, in terms of, of players, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I got to see Vlad Jr. a couple times, and I saw him get hits both games. I think he he still has a hit, perhaps in every game he's played, but it was only one hit. I, I didn't see him go off. I, I saw Daz Cameron play pretty well. I saw you know in the Tigers system. Uh, Daz Cameron told me a great story. I asked if his dad had played in the fall league, and he said no. But he was supposed to, and got bumped by Michael Jordan, which I, which was like, pretty. I thought it was a pretty cool story. I'd never heard that one before. That, yeah. that Michael Jordan took his, uh, took his took spot. spot. That was kind of cool. I saw Eli White get a couple hits. Um, you, know, you know, kind of building on uh, the uh, great season, the breakout season he had in Double A. He, he's a totally different player than he was coming out of college. Um, you know, pitching wise, I, I saw. It, I was spoiled. I got to see Forrest Whitley pitch twice. I, I didn't get to see him, Johnson, strike out the first seven batters in the game yeah, like you did. But I saw a great an outing where he just looked tremendous. And then I saw an outing where he, he struggled in the first inning and gave up a couple runs, but but then kind of rallied after that. His secondary pitches weren't as sharp. He, he's clearly the best pitcher in the league. And then a couple of relievers who've kind of stood out to me, um, you know, not big names, but Melvin Adon with the Giants, who's – you know, looks. You know, his body looks like it's in pretty good shape. He, he's throwing more strikes. He, he's he's two seaming, not just four seaming up to a hundred. And then, kind of, I think we had him on our sleeper list coming into the fall league season. Matt Livenis of, of the Yankees. He just gets a lot of movement on his pitches and is very tough to barrel up. So those are two kind of obscure names that stood out to me uh, when I got to see him pitch in relief. Yeah, I did notice, um, and you know. I think as we talked about that, the first week of the fall league is always a blur for me because I'm running around doing all the the video interviews for our, uh, for our overview. So I I don't really get to focus, that, but I do remember like looking up and feeling that every reliever coming in was upper 90s. There was like there was like a, I'm I'm sure that wasn't the case, but I felt that there was more premium power stuff coming out of bullpens than I remember. Uh, and there are a lot of guys out there who are who are having results to go along with it. Um, you know, you know the guys that you mentioned have put up some good numbers. Uh, Darwin's and Hernandez, I think we talked about. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's continuing to throw well. Um, you know, there's some some other guys uh, throwing well also with putting up zero. So uh, it should be fun. I, I go back out on uh, Monday morning. So our our next podcast I'll. We'll, I'll be out there, and uh, we'll be able to talk more, uh, focus on the Fall League then. But uh, I think that will do it for, for us. I think we managed to uh, muddle through without our fearless leader, Tim McMaster. For Jim Callis, uh, this is Jonathan Mayo. Thanks for joining us on this week's Pipeline Podcast. <laughs>